die early and often, being Addis in the Anthropocene. I'm coming to terms with the fact that we are, well, fucked. Our civilization is rushing toward its inevitable end. And it's going to take out a big part of the biosphere with it. Cap and trade is not going to save us. Renewable energy is not going to save us. Nuclear energy is not going to save us. Carbon capture is not going to save us. The politicians are not going to save us. The scientists are not going to save us. The activists are not going to save us. We are not going to be saved. For so many reasons, we are going to fail, and fail badly. Once we come to terms with that fact, the question then becomes, so what do we do now? Quote from uh, Vinay Gupta, Death and the Human Condition, in Walking on Lava, Selected Works for Uncivilized Times, Dark Mountain Book, 2017. The quote is, the real question is, what is the social role of one who understands that all of this will end? What does socially responsible acceptance look like? Well, let's start with what it doesn't look like. I know it doesn't look like throwing up our hands and doing nothing. But I also don't think that it looks like more expressive hobbyists engaging in what Sophia Burns calls catharsis politics. Marching on weekends, rallying in front of empty government buildings with the hope of influencing lawmakers, and getting arrested for blocking traffic hundreds of miles away from the thing being protested. But I don't think it looks like communitarian base building either, at least not if it's done with the ulterior motive of fostering an increasingly improbable proletariat revolution. Even if the revolution were going to happen, it would be too little too late. And I'm sure it doesn't look like endless quibbling over trivial details of leftist political theory with online frenemies, alienating naive progressives with superior cynicism, or sending passionate manifestos heavily laden with Marxist jargon into the etheric eco-chamber. I think maybe it does look like building what Dr. Bones calls a leftism with with benefits, acquiring land, skills, and resources to improve the lives of the exploited and oppressed in the here and now, while also creating spaces in which people can retreat when the shit hits the fan. I think maybe it does look like building refuges, as Paul Kingsnorth suggests, for human and other-than-human life. And a two-paragraph quote from Paul Kingsnorth, Dark Ecology, in Orion magazine. Quote, Maybe you can buy up some land and rewild it. Maybe you can let your garden run free. Maybe you can work for a conservation group or set up one yourself. Maybe you can put your body in the way of a bulldozer. Maybe you can use your skills to prevent the destruction of yet another wild place. Ask yourself, what power do you have to preserve what is of value? Creatures, skills, things, places? Can you work with others or alone to create places or networks? that act as refuges from the unfolding storm? This is a rational response to impending disaster, a compassionate response, a good response, one that has the virtue of at least reducing some of the suffering that will attend the end of the world as we know it. But I'll be honest, I want something more than pragmatism. It's not enough to keep me going. I want something more from the end of the world. I want transformation. And for that... I turn to religion. We are the dying God. 
Quote from William Blake, Milton's Journey to Eternal Death. I will go down to self-annihilation and eternal death, lest the last judgment come and find me unannihilate, and I be seized and given into the hands of my own selfhood. One of the things that drew me to neo-paganism was the myth of the dying god. There are several examples of dying gods in ancient pagan sources. Egyptian Osiris, Canaanite Baal, Babylonian Tammuz, Greek Dionysus, and Phlegian Attis, who sacrificed himself to the great mother goddess Sybil. Uh, I may be mispronouncing these. And was reborn as a pine tree. Quote from Celestius on the gods and the world. They say that the mother of the gods, seeing Attis lying by the river Gallus, fell in love with him, took him, crowned him with her cap of stars. He fell in love with a nymph and left the mother to live with her. For this, the mother of the gods made Attis go mad and cut off his genital organs and leave them with the nymph and then return to dwell with her. The mother of the gods is the principle that generates life. That is why she is called the mother. Attis is the creator of all things which are born and die. Now these things never happened, but always are. The rites of Attis were celebrated during the week of the spring equinox. A pine tree was cut down and carried in a procession to the temple and with lamentations. The devotees of Attis would whip themselves and sprinkle the altars and effigy of the god with their own blood. Those who were to be dedicated as priests of Sebel, C-Y-B-E-L-E, performed self-castrations. On the third day, the people celebrated the rejoicing, the Hilaria, which which commemorates the rebirth of Attis, and the cycle would begin all over again. The details of the dying god myth vary, of course, from place to place, but the dying god archetype transcends the local instances of the myth. James Frazier, the Golden Bough, and Robert Graves, the White Goddess, articulate the outline of the archetype in modern times. From these classicists, neo-paganism adopted the myth of the dying god and gave it religious expression in the form of the neo-pagan Wheel of the Year, which consists of eight seasonal celebrations corresponding to the solstices and equinoxes and the seasonal points between them. The Wheel of the Year is the life cycle of the dying god mapped onto the solar year, including the cycle of his relationship to the undying goddess in her triune form of mother, lover, and slayer. Neo-pagan author and activist Starhawk explains the relationship of the dying god and the goddess in this way. Quote, this is from Starhawk's Spiral Dance. The goddess is the encircler, the ground of being, the god in that which is brought forth, her mirror image her other pole. She is the earth. He is the grain. She is the all-encompassing sky. He is the sun, her fireball. She is the wheel. He is the traveler. He is the sacrifice of life to death that life may go on. She is the mother and destroyer. He is all that is born and is destroyed. The myth of the dying God teaches us about the meaning of death and the power of surrender. It's natural to want to live forever, but we are destined to die. Death is a part of the cycle of life, and nothing dies in vain. No matter or energy is lost. The movement of the wheel sanctifies death, making it holy. The myth of the dying god and 
its embodiment in neo-pagan ritual, has the potential to foster a transformation of consciousness toward death. In neo-pagan ritual, we come, uh, we become the dying god and symbolically enact a voluntary offering of our transient self to the goddess, who is the great cosmic round. Quote from Starhawk. Ritualistic and mythic identification with the sacrificing god honors the life spark, even in death, and prepares to give away gracefully to new life when the time comes for each of us to die. Waxing and waning, birth and death, takes place within the human psyche and life cycle. Each is to be welcomed in its proper time and season because life is a process of constant change that, cho- that chooses to surrender itself to the cycle to ride the wheel. Unquote. By identifying with the dying God, we renounce the need for control and permanence for the sake of meaning and transformation. As Joseph Campbell explained, quote, when, when will the will of the individual to his own immortality has been extinguished, as it is in the rites such as these, through, uh, through an effective realization of the immortality of being itself and of the play through all, and of its play through all beings, he is united with that being in experience in a stunning crisis of release from the psychology of mortality. Unquote. This means that more than merely accepting our fate, it means shifting from an egocentric perspective in which death is the ultimate evil to a cosmic perspective in which death is part of the cycle of life. Say it again. This means more than merely accepting our fate. It means shifting from an egocentric perspective in which death is the ultimate evil to an ecocentric or cosmic perspective in which death is a part of the cycle of life. Rather than raging against the dying of the light, we surrender to the wheel, and in surrendering, we are transformed. This transformation brings no apotheosis, no individual immortality, but it enables us to realize the meaning of our lives as part of a greater whole that transcends us. So again, rather than raging against the dying of the light, we we surrender to the process of life, to the wheel, and in that surrendering, we are transformed. This transformation brings no apotheosis, no individual immortality, but it enables us to realize the meaning of our lives as part of a greater whole that transcends us. Quote from Ken Wilber, The whole point of these esoteric ceremonies, rituals, prayers, etc. was to accept the death of the separate self and thus rise to an identity or communion with the great goddess. This was a self-sacrifice, which allowed the individual to to transcend the self. Learning how to die. The ceaseless labor of your life is to build the house of death. Mitchell de, de Montaigne. If we are to be the dying God, then our job is to die. According to Joseph Campbell, when our day is come for the victory of death, Death closes in. There is nothing we can do except be crucified and resurrected, dismembered totally, and then reborn. But we actually do have a choice. We can accept our fate and be willing sacrifices, or we can fight our fate and go out in a blaze of glory. But there are costs if we choose the latter course. As Starhawk explains, quote, The god chooses to sacrifice himself in order to remain within the orbit of the goddess within the cycle of the natural world, and within the esoteric primal union that creates the world. 
Were he to cling to any point on the wheel and refuse to give way to change, the cycle would stop. He would fall out of orbit and lose all. Harmony would be destroyed. Union would be broken. He would not be preserving himself. He would be denying his true self, his deepest passion, his very nature." Collectively, our society is in denial, and the costs of our denial are all around us. In the wrecking of the biosphere, in the extinction of millions of other species, in the poisoning of the soil, the water, the air. The question then becomes, how do we return to the orbit of the goddess? How do we surrender to the wheel? Roy Scranton, author of Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, Reflections on the End of Civilization, or on the end of a civilization, 2015, writes that if we want to know how to live in the Anthropocene, we need to learn how to die. We need to find what Isabel Stengers and Philippe uh, uh, Pignari call a modus morirendi, a way of death. We need to learn how to die well. Scranton's suggesting for dying well is reinvesting in the humanities, relearning the art of bookmaking, and trying to preserve the best of our cultural heritage. Quote, this is from Roy Scranton, If being human is to mean anything at all in the Anthropocene, if we're going to refuse to let ourselves sink into futility of life without memory, then we must not lose our few thousand years of hard-won knowledge accumulated at great cost and against great odds. Unquote. But how do we choose? How do we decide what to preserve? What if we end up preserving the very parts of our civilization that caused all of this to happen in the first place? And isn't Scranton's prescription just another immortality project? Are we really embracing the death of, a, of civilization if we are still trying to preserve its best parts for posterity? Becoming Compost Donna Haraway, author of Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the uh, Celtocene, C-H-T-H-U-L-U-C-E-N-E, has a different idea. Be compost. Rather than humanities, Haraway writes of humusities, or the human as humus. Rather than humanism, or post-humanism, she advocates multi-species compostism. Quote, Critters are at stake in each other uh, in every mixing and turning of a, ter- of a ter- Terran compost pile. We are compost, not post-human. We inhabit the human, human, humusties, humusties, not the humanities. Philosophically and materially, I am a compostist, not a post-humanist. Critters, human and not, become, uh, uh, become each with each other. compost to decompose each other in every scale and register of time and stuff in symbiopoietic tangling in ecological evolutionary development, earthly worlding and unworlding, unquote. This kind of obtuse language is characteristic of Haraway. She calls it tentacular thinking. Imagine literary tentacles stretching everywhere, grasping here and there, creating temporary webs of significance. Haraway experiments with words and phrases as a way of grasping at different modes of being, or worlding, one that decenters the human. This decentering is reflected in Haraway's substitution of the world Kultocene for Anthropocene. Haraway calls this new mode of being symbiopoiesis, 
which means making with, as in our making our world with other species. Quote, nothing makes itself. Nothing is really autopoietic or self-organizing. Earthlings are never alone. This is the radical implication of symbiopoiesis. Sympoiesis is a proper is a word proper to complex, dynamic, responsive, situated historical systems. It's a word for worlding with in company. The more one looks, the more the name of the game of living and dying on Earth is a convoluted multi-species affair that goes by the name of symbiosis, the yoking together of companion species at table together. Unquote. In the face of civilizational collapse and mass extinction, Haraway rejects both hope in techno-theocratic geoengineering fixers and wallowing in despair. Instead, she urges us to stay with the trouble, to, quote, collect up the trash of the Anthropocene, the, extermi- the extermination- exterminism of the Capitalocene, and chipping and shedding and layer and layering like a mad gardener, make a much hotter compost pile for still possible pests, presents, and, f- and futures. <laughs> oh, still possible pasts, futures, presents, and futures, unquote. The first step, according to Haraway, is to make kin with the other-than-human beings with whom we constitute the compost piles of, earth, of the earth. Making kin means seeing our kind as humus rather than as human or non-human. It means recognizing that all earthlings are kin in the deepest sense. All critters share common flesh, quote-unquote. It means, quote, learning again for the first time how to become less deadly, more responsible, more attuned, more capable of surprise, more able to practice the arts of living and dying well in multi-species symbiosis, symbiopoiesis, and I can't even pronounce this, semagenesis on a damaged planet. Royce Granton seems to come close to the same conclusion at the end of his book, We're Doomed, Now What? Quote, The dire and seemingly unsolvable fact of climate change, just like the unsolvable fact of our own mortality, doesn't signify the end of ethical thought, but its beginning. For it's only in recognizing the fact that our lives are limited, complicit, imperfect, and interdependent that we begin to understand what it means to live together in this world. Unquote. That was the chapter on raising a daughter in a doomed world. Haraway admits this won't be easy. Multi-species sympoiesis isn't something we can, that can be donned on like a magic cape, she says. But we can begin by thinking ourselves beyond our egocentrism and anthropocentrism and into relationship with the more-than-human world. Haraway calls this thinking with. Other writers have attempted to think with the other-than-human. Although Leopold's thinking like a mountain comes to mind, as does Robinson Jeffers' Inhumanism. Quote, We must uncenter our minds from ourselves. We must unhumanize our views a little and become confident as the rock and the ocean that we were made from. Unquote. Writing more prosaically, Royce Granton describes this radical shift in perspective. Quote, We need to learn to see, not just with Western eyes, but with Islamic eyes and Inuit eyes, and not just with human eyes, but with gold-cheeked warbler eyes, coho salmon eyes, and polar bear eyes, and not just with the eyes of all, uh, with with eyes at all, but with the wild, barely articulate being of uh, clouds and seas and rocks and trees and stars, unquote. Science fiction 
or speculative fabulation. Quote from the Dark Mountain Manifesto. It is through stories that we weave reality. Unquote. I begin part one of this. Uh, I began part one of this essay with references to contemporary apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic science fiction, weaving in the ancient modern myth of Attis, the dying god. And now I return to science fiction to what filmmaker uh, Fabrezzo uh, Terranova calls speculative fabulation. Quote. A type of narration that enables one to unfold new worlds through arousing an appetite for what's possible, what could or could have taken place. It is not just about understanding a totally new creation. The remarkable difference is that it's about placing lures susceptible of bringing forth today's possibilities that were already in situations, unquote. Donna Haraway's Camille Stories, Children of Compost, in Staying with the Trouble, is an example of this kind of writing. Haraway tells the story of people living in a time of ongoing extinction due to climate change, the effects of which last for centuries. The children of compost form communities of a few hundred people who migrate to to damaged places and develop transformative practices for intentional kin-making and work symbopoetically to heal, and to be healed by, kin in those places. This means intentionally reducing human numbers while increasing the flourishing of all of these species, human and others, who inhabit a place. In the compost communities, children are rare but precious. When a decision is made to bring a new human infant into, into being, an other-than-human animal or plant symbiont is chosen for the child from among species who are threatened with extinction. At birth, a few genes and a few microorganisms of the symbiont are added to the child's, human child's body. The human child's formative years are then spent learning how to nurture the symbiont species, as well as the other species on whom the symbiont depends to survive and thrive. This commitment to symbiosis binds five generations of humans. The Camille stories relate the stories of five generations of women, all named Camille, living between 2025 and 2425, in a part of West Virginia devastated by mountaintop removal. The Camilles are bound symbiotically to the monarch butterflies who migrate between Mexico and Canada and work symbiopoetically to promote their flourishing. Storytelling is central to this work, as Haraway explains, quote, compostists soon found that storytelling was their most powerful practice for composting or for comforting, inspiring, remembering, warning, nurturing compassion, mourning, and becoming with each other in their differences, hopes, and terrors. I'm going to read that quote again. Haraway explains, quote, compostists soon found that storytelling was the most powerful practice for comforting, inspiring, remembering, warning, nurturing compassion, mourning, and becoming with each other in their differences, hopes, and terrors, unquote. But despite the deepening of the symbiotic bond and sympopoetic practices over three generations, the fourth Camille is faced with the loss of monarch migrations, along with the loss of 50% of all species planet-wide. Camille 4 must prepare Camille 5 for a new role as a speaker of the dead, or speaker for the dead, one who will remember, mourn, and represence the monarch as a form of sympopoetis with the dead what Haraway calls semiangenesis. 
Haraway leaves undetermined the question of the future of the children of the compost and the possibility of a multi-species flourishing. Rather than imagining a utopia, a utopia she, quote, stays with the trouble, unquote. Haraway's Children of the Compost reminds me of the resistance community at the end of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, living in an age of nuclear holocaust, living in the ashes of nuclear holocaust, except instead of preserving books, the literary legacy of humanity, like Royce Scranton suggests, the Children of the Compost preserve the book of nature and the genetic legacy of the more than human biosphere. So again, uh, th- this Haraway's Children of the Compost reminds him of the resistance community at the end of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, living in the ashes of nuclear holocaust, except instead of preserving books, the literary legacy of humanity, like Roy Scranton suggests, the Children of the Compost preserve the book of nature and the genetic legacy of the more than human biosphere. Instead of individuals passing memorized stories from books, the compostists engage in storytelling, an active and communal process in which the text, quote-unquote, is always evolving. Instead of preservation being solely a matter of the mind, the children of the compost do the work of healing with their bodies and with their hearts, as well as their minds. And instead of the image of the phoenix, which concludes Fahrenheit 451, Haraway offers the model of compost. Last words. Die early and often. A quote from Galloway Kinnell. How many nights must it take, one such as me, to learn that we aren't, after all, made from that bird that flies out of its ashes, that for us, as we go up in flames, our one work is to open ourselves to be the flames. And a quote from Hervin Melville, Moby Dick. Oh, thou clear spirit of clear fire, whom on these seas I as Persian once did worship, till in the sacramental act so burned by thee, that to this hour I bear the scar. Thou canst blind, but I can then grope. Thou canst consume, but I can then be ashes. At the end of the world, we are called to be the flames, to be the ashes, to be compost, to be the dying God. This isn't a very hopeful response, I know, but as Robinson Jeffers wrote, hope is not for the wise, unquote. And in Derek Jensen, quote, hope is what keeps us chained to the system, the conglomerate of people and ideas and ideals that is causing the destruction of the earth, unquote. It's not just, it's not exactly a hopeless response either, though. It's kind of hopeful, hopeful hopelessness or hopeless hopefulness, <laughs> And then he's got a, a, uh, a quote from a, a, a poet and radio-free Iraq host, uh, Nasir Hassan, as quoted by Royce Granton in Back to Baghdad, Life in the City of Doom. Hopelessness is the limit and the beginning of a new kind of hope. You have to, go, you have to keep going, not to achieve dreams of beautiful mountaintop forests, but because life is more powerful than death and hopelessness makes possible new hope, a faith in the basic tissue of life that is stronger than any disaster. Unquote. If we are doomed, and we are, we must find a way between hope and despair. Both hope and despair are products of our belief in the myth of progress and the myth of the individual. I'll say it again. If we are doomed, and we are, we must find a way between hope and despair. 
both hope and despair are products of our belief in the myth of progress and the myth of the individual. We need different stories, different myths. The Dark Mountain Project is one group of artists and storytellers who are trying to tell different stories. Quote, to paint a picture of the Homo sapiens, which is which a being from another world, or better, a being from our own, a blue whale, an albatross, a mountain hare, might recognize as something approaching a truth. It sets out to tug our attention away from ourselves and to turn it outwards, to uncenter our minds. It is writing, in short, which puts civilization and us into perspective. Unquote. Again, that was from the Dark Mountain Manifesto. Others are doing this as well. Haraway's Children of the Compost is one example. The neo-pagan myth of the dying god is another. And it's not just writers who participate in storytelling. Poets, musicians, filmmakers, and other artists also contribute. Examples of contemporary kin-making and dying dying well include fiction, Octavia Butler's uh, Exogenesis series, Ursula Le Guin's The The Word for World is Forest, and John Steinbeck's To a God Unknown, poetry, Mary Oliver, David White, Wendell Berry, and Robinson Jeffers, music, Jeff Bartley's The Language of Stones, Paul Winter's Miss Agaya, Hosier's Take Me to Church, and Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, film, Darren Arefsky's, I don't know how to pronounce it, The Fountain, James Cameron's Avatar, and Hayao Miyazaki's Princess uh, Mononoke. And photography, uh, Gregory Colbert and Katrina uh, Platikova. Haraway herself draws from a multiplicity of media beyond books, including music, anime, and even video games. For example, she writes about her experience playing Never Alone, a video game created in collaboration with Alaska Native community members. In the game, the player moves between uh, a a, a Nippon girl named Nuna and her Arctic fox companion as they leave Nuna's home village to discover the source of an unprecedented blizzard and restore balance to nature. Haraway writes that she dies early and often in the game. I don't think I'm reading too much into Haraway's phrasing, is such a thing even possible, to hear an echo of the political slogan, vote early and often. To die early and often echoes the advice of religious sages from diverse uh, wisdom traditions to die before you die. To die early and often means to walk the path of the dying God. To die early means to face our death, both personal and collective, the death of the myth of individuality and the death of the myth of human progress. It means to face our fate before it arrives at our doorstep. Say it again. To die early means to face our death, both personal and collective, the death of the myth of individuality and the death of the myth of human progress. It means to face our fate before it arrives on our doorstep. Vinya Gupta is a contributor to the Dark Mountain Project and a Kapalika, a member of the the ascetic sect of Shiva devotees who traditionally carried empty human skulls as begging bowls. Gupta writes that, one of the functions of the uh, Kapalika is to strip away the lies about death, the mythology, and the avoidance, and to spread hope by a simple fact. The avoidance of the truth of death is worse than death itself. Death cannot be avoided, but its avoidance can be avoided. 
That's a quote from Vinay Gupta, Death in the Human Condition. So I'm going to read that again. The, the function of these empty human skulls as begging bowls is to strip away the lies about death, the mythology and the avoidance, and to spread hope by a simple fact. The avoidance of the truth of death is worse, is worse than death itself. Death cannot be avoided, but its avoidance can be avoided. To die often means creating new practices of imagination, resistance, revolt, repair, and mourning, and of living and dying well. Again, to die often, this is Haraway's definition, uh, means to create new practices of imagination, resistance, revolt, repair, and mourning, and of living and dying well. And creative rituals of kinmaking to embody our new stories and myths. John Seed and Joanna Macy's Council of All Beings is one example of such rituals. The Council of All Beings is a communal ritual in which participants step aside from their human identity and speak on behalf of another life form. A simple structure for spontaneous expression, it aims to heighten awareness of our interdependence in the body of life, in the living body of earth, and to strengthen our commitment to defend it. The ritual serves to help us acknowledge and give voice to the suffering in our world, or the suffering of our world. It also serves in equal measure to help us experience the beauty and power of our interconnectedness with all life. Quote from Joanna Macy. There is much work to be done to translate these new stories and myths into practices of living and dying well in the Anthropocene. I imagine such practices would yield practical goods, much like a leftism with benefits, but in a more than human dimension, multi-species mutual aid, if you will. And then he, uh, he has a footnote. This is not a new idea, actually. Arco-communist uh, uh, Peter Kropotkin's concept of mutual aid was inspired by interspecies cooperation. Since we must walk the dying God's path, we should do so together, symbopoetically, with our human kin, but also with all other earthkin and whom, with whom we are doomed to die. Living with was the only possible way to live well, writes Hathaway. So too, dying with is the only possible way to die well. Sometimes this seems like an inadequate response, too little, too late. And I have to remind myself that I'm not trying to save the world anymore. I'm trying to stay with the trouble. We are doomed to walk the path of the dying God. We must do so not in the hope of survival or salvation, but in the hope of transformation. Our job is is to is not to survive or even to birth a new world. Our job is to die, to die well, to die with, to die early and often, to die in such a way that we are ash heap of history, might become the compost pile of the goddess. Read that again. Since we must walk the dying God's path, we should do so together, symbopoetically, with our human kin, but also with all other earthkin with whom we are doomed to die. Living with was only possible is the only possible way to live well, writes Haraway. So too, dying with is the only possible way to die well to die well. Sometimes this seems like an inadequate response, too little too late. And I have to remind myself that I'm not trying to save the world anymore. I'm trying to stay with the trouble. Quote unquote. We are doomed to walk the path of the dying God. We must do so not in the hope of survival or salvation, 
but in the hope of transformation. Our job is, to not, is not to survive or even to birth a new world. Our job is to die, to die well, to die with, to die early and often, to die in such a way that the, quote, ash heap of history, unquote, might become the compost pile of the goddess. Chapter 3.